Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi there. Welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, as a kid, I think one of the most memorable sights in my first aquarium, complete with, you know, the blue gravel and the plastic plants, was a group of, I think it was eight zebra danios racing at, you know, breakneck speed around the tank in this furious fashion as if they had to get somewhere in a big freaking hurry, only to reverse course and do it all over again. I never forgot how much I liked those zebras. Almost every other danio species kept in the aquarium for that matter. Yeah, this has been a, a fish that's been known to science and the aquarium hobby for a very long time. It was first described by Francis Hamilton, a surgeon with the British East India Company stationed in West Bengal in the early 19th century. He published an account of the fishes found in the River Ganges and its branches, which was his work on just that, in 1822. And he described the zebra and I think nine other Daniel species. The more I researched this fish beyond the usual aquarium hobby stuff, the more remarkable stuff I found. Like, there's no less than 13 scientifically recognized wild strains of this fish. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And there's more cool stuff you can find in the scientific literature. For example, uh, ichthyologists feel that this fish appears to be primarily an annual species in the wild, uh, the spawning season starting just before the onset of the monsoon and that spawning is induced by temperature and commences at the onset of the monsoon season. And the food availability also acts as a cue for breeding. That's from fish base. Interesting. And fish base, by the way, if you don't use that, is a, is a very interesting research-based um, resource that's uh, free of charge for everybody to access. And it has good scientific data uh, contributed by researchers and ichthyology researchers from around the world. Just a really great um, resource for freshwater fishes and if you look you know beyond just the initial descriptions there's some really neat things about the ecology of fishes and so forth make use of it it's good now about this annual thing now sure in the aquarium they can live like four or five years however in the wild the length frequency analysis that researchers did yielded or demonstrated essentially two distinct uh i guess they call them age classes which basically means um ranges. And during the summer months, particularly, you find fishes that are zero to one year and about one year, indicating that the main period of rapid growth in these guys takes place during the monsoon months, which is June to September. And that's a period of, you know, high temperatures where they get up to, you know, 84 degrees Fahrenheit, 34 degrees centigrade, and high food availability. Another interesting thing is that spinal curvature, which is a sign of old age in captive fishes, was not found in wild-caught specimens, which leads researchers to believe that the fishes expire well before this can actually occur. They're not long-lived in the wild. Simple, boring, beginner's fish my ass, <laughs> the zebra danios really increasingly being used by researchers as a model for studying uh, genetic defects in vertebrate development and all kinds of stuff. 
Uh, zebra daniels are actually able to regenerate their heart, their nervous tissues, their retina, hearing tissues, and fins. It just goes on and on. This fish has a lot of interesting features that make it very attractive to researchers. And the amazing thing about this fish is it's probably the most bulletproof species that you can keep, right? I mean, I kept them when I was a kid, and like I say, my skills weren't quite as good as they are now. <laughs> In fact, though, I, I recall reading somewhere that the tolerated temperature range of this fish based on wild type localities is from 76 degrees to 101 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 24 degrees Celsius to about 38 degrees Celsius. Um, I mean, if that isn't a broad temperature range, you know, nothing is. And it tolerates water with a pH of six, from 6.0 to 8.0 in, in, based on the collected uh, range data. Yeah, these guys are hardly what you call fussy fishes. Its diet, based on gut content analysis, you know, consists primarily of zooplankton and insects. The usual stuff, right? Well, it also revealed that the fishes consume filamentous algae, terrestrial insects, including small spiders, detritus, sand, and mud. So no wonder this fish is considered easy. It literally eats anything it can encounter. It feeds at the surface and on the substrate. And you know me, once I hear that kind of stuff, I get these weird ideas like, what, what if we were to mimic the conditions of the natural habitat of the fishes? Would there be anything that would, uh, you know, enable the fish to do better? Is there some advantage somewhere? There's something you could unlock by doing this. I think like this for so many fishes, as you probably know by now, as if to shun the fact that, you know, 90% of what we keep in the aquarium world these days has never seen a stream, pond, or river. It's all been captive bred. It's just, I, I don't know, it's just irresistible to me to think about this kind of stuff. Taking the most common of aquarium fishes and giving them throwback conditions, seeing if somehow it awakens something locked into their genetic code over eons, just something. I mean... It's kind of silly, I suppose. There's so many other things to do in the hobby uh, rather than play with fishes which have been established for 100 years or more. But I can't help wonder if we can learn something from replicating you know, some aspect of their long-forgotten wild habitats. And in regards to the zebra daniel, what's interesting to me is the habitats in which these fishes are found. Now, one of the habitats is known as a beal. I've never heard of this habitat, so I looked it up, which according to Wikipedia is a lake-like wetland with a static water as opposed to moving water in rivers and canals. So it's a static water sort of feature, which is interesting. That's something that I hadn't heard before in terms of a descriptor. Now, in one study of the locations in which these fishes were found, out of 26 reported occurrences, 14 were in ponds, three were in ditches connected to rice paddies or in the rice paddies themselves and nine were canals and small rivulets adjacent to larger rivers now this is interesting typically these fishes are found in northern india and this area is subjected to seasonal rainfall between the months of june and september due to the summer monsoon and the water levels and the characteristics vary considerably at different times of the year they're, the fishes are often found in inundated rice paddies and marginal pools and ditches adjacent to them with this silty kind of turbid water with very little movement. Now, during the dry time of the year, they spend their time in calm, shaded areas of streams with rocky or gravel-strewn substrates. Now, this is interesting because it reminds me a bit of the Amazonian igarape or the igapo, uh, although instead of rainforest, you've got rice paddies, so kind of an interesting thing. Now... I'm going to read you a little excerpt of a paper I found about the species, um, which sort of describes the unique habitats in which they're found. Let's see. 
the zebra daniel appears to be a f uh, found on a flood a floodplain rather than a true riverine species. They're most commonly encountered in shallow ponds and standing water bodies, often connected to rice cultivation. This association with rice cultivation may relate to the use of fertilizers, which may promote the growth of zooplankton, a major component of the zebrafish diet. Spence et al. in 2006 found no zebrafish either in rivers or temporary creeks that opened during the monsoon season. Where zebrafish are found in streams and rivers, these typically have a low flow regime and zebrafish tend to be found at the margins. Observations of their vertical distribution indicated that they occupy the whole of the water column and occur frequently, as frequently in open water as they do amongst aquatic vegetation. So yeah, this whole fast moving stream thing that we get in the idea about these fishes seems to be less common than the good old fashioned rice patties and shallow, more still bodies of water. I remember for years as a kid, we'd say, oh, it's a sleek fish. It's designed for, you know, living in fast water. Well, apparently that's not always the case based on at least the localities where the fish seems to be collected or, or encountered in the wild, at least these days. So the zebra seems to inhabit a world of, you know, marginal plants, turbidities, silty substrates, and lots of food. And I've been playing with rice seeds, silted substrates, and turbid water a lot over the last few years, haven't I? Hmm, interesting to me. So my simple thought is, this fish seems to hang out in what we as hobbyists would think of as less desirable conditions for most of the year. That silty rice paddy stuff and the adjacent dishes. And only spends the dry season in the more permanent, less turbid streams. Now why would this be? Is there some advantage? Like food, better substrates for breeding, protection? Why the turbid water? What does it bring to the fishes? Would there be an advantage to keeping a fish like the zebra in a different conditions at different times of the year, just like in nature, or simply in a tank representing one of the two habitats that it's found in? Wouldn't you want or need to do this? I mean, the fish has been captive bred as a staple of the hobby for almost a century, but I can't help but wonder why these fishes live the way they do in the wild. What advantages do these habitats hold for the fish? Would you get different behaviors, different colors, different health, different fecundity out of the fishes by doing this sort of seasonal transition? Would using a very fine sand substrate maybe mixed in with some mud or something similar to replicate the rice patties with pump returns, you know, gently angled at the bottom to simulate turbidity, develop, develop some kind of interesting behavior in the fishes that maybe un unlocks something? Okay, I'm getting a little crazy here, but this might just have been the most ever discussed in a hobby context about the obscure habitats and characteristics of probably one of the most pervasive species in the aquarium hobby. Again, why, you ask? My answer, I just think it'd be kind of cool. Weird, but cool. Am I the only one who thinks about weird stuff like this? Maybe? On second thought, don't answer that. I know, the fish is bred by the billion in fish farms all over the world, as are many much sexier domesticated strains of its relatives, you know, the long fin ones and all that stuff. But wouldn't it be interesting to see what happens when you repatriate these common fishes to uncommon executions of their natural habitats? I think it would be. In fact, I'm fairly certain that it would be. It's a fave sort of hobby tangent of mine. I, I think that we're going to actually do a periodic series that, uh, where we'll look at the wild habitats of the most common fishes. We we'll call it off the grid because we're going to go take you off the beaten path out of the aquarium literature and look at where they come from in the wild and Maybe see there's some unlocks for us to play with. Yeah, the whole purpose of this presenting this podcast to you and this, this piece that I wrote as a blog as well 
is to encourage you to go off the grid with the common fishes. Research them not in the hobby literature. Instead, delve into some scholarly research about them. There's so much there. The insights you gather may not always be remarkable, but you might uncover just enough about the so-called common fish swimming at the local fish store that you just might want to tackle them with a whole new approach. Yes, your friends will think that you're nuts. I will love you. And you'll probably wonder why you're doing this. But that's the whole fun part of this, right? Yeah, it is. What fish are you going to go off the grid with? Stay curious. Stay resourceful. Stay brave. Stay educated. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tink.